Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It is so not about you. And it's, it's not about me and it's not about you. And everyone's like, well, yes, it is. And I'm like, no, it's not. You think people are like focused on you? You think they actually... Who, who, who is everybody else thinking about? Themselves. In the moment you make it about you looking good, you've lost your power. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I have guest Amy Wong. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm so excited to have you on. Uh, we were connected by Sherry Salata. I know she had you come in and speak with her group. And as soon as that happened, she sent me a message that was like, you have to interview Amy Wong. It was very adamant because <laughs> I know that you created profound shifts in her group, in the, the people that she speaks to on a, on a regular, her membership. So I'm so excited to have you here because your interest in the space of what does it mean to live on purpose, but yeah, I know you work with a lot of big companies and do a lot of work with people. So let's start there. What is it? That's a big subject. Like how do we get into purpose, living on purpose? What does that even mean? Gosh. Yeah. Where do we start? Mark? <laughs> well, very, very simply put, living on purpose or being on purpose is a, is it's really the art of harnessing choice. It's deciding to be in the driver's seat of your own life. And as simple as that sounds, a lot of us really don't practice that. I, I think it has to do with all the stimulus and all of the 
the inputs that are coming at us. But really, if we want to live a, jo- a life of joy and true fulfillment, meaning, it really has to do with the choices we make. And when I talk about living on purpose, yes, it's about harnessing choice. But the big aha here is it's not choice at the level of action, right? Because that's where everybody wants to focus, meaning, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up early to work out instead of sleep in. That's a good choice. Or I'm going to choose this salad over a hamburger. That's a good choice. Yeah, that's all great. That's fine. That helps. But if we really want to thrive, we have to go a layer deeper and we have to harness choice at the level of perception. And so that's really what this is about. So what does that mean? Because I hear you say about waking up early and working out versus sleeping in or, you know, the burger versus the salad. And, you know, I think that's how most of us orient towards choice. That's most of us how how we orient towards like the way that I'm going to get the body or the life or the job or the thing is going to be I'm going to make these real time decisions that I've heard from some motivational speaker or something is like, what's his name? David Goggins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, get up in the motherfucking morning, <laughs> get out there and run. So, you know, like, what does it mean when you talk about choice at the state of perception? Because I'm going to guess almost none of us actually think about it from this space of perception. I'll start with an analogy. You know how you, at the end of the day, you want to chill out. I know you're working on your book. You're getting ready for your baby. There's a lot going on. So there are I'm no doubt times you want to just veg, you want to chill out. So what do you do? You sit down, you turn on the TV. And do you remember back in the day before streaming services, you actually had to change the channel, remember with cable, right? And so whatever popped up on the screen really would be whatever channel it was last on. And so, you know, as a human now, when we want to veg, we sit down, we turn on the TV and we're very discerning and we're very discriminating about what it is that we want to watch because we know that whatever we focus on is going to determine how we feel. And if we want to chill out, we're very clear, like, you know, I'd probably much rather watch Planet Earth than this horror film. And so we're really discriminating about how we change the channel because we get that what we focus on influences our experience. So we get that when it comes to TV, but then we think it doesn't apply to any other aspect of our life. And so really what harnessing choices, a level of perception is recognizing that whatever I focus on is going to absolutely influence my experience. It's going to determine how I feel. And I have a remote control in my hand of my own mind. And so as I look out to the world, I can choose first what I want to perceive. So, so yes, okay, choice at the level of action. Am I going to scroll through social media or am I going to meditate, right? So what am I actually going to input? That's choice at the level of action. But then now that I'm perceiving, what do I want to make this mean? Many of us think that meaning is born into the system and that our experience is due to the stuff out there, but really it's our relationship to the stuff that dictates how we feel and what our reality really is. And so we get to choose that. We get to choose what we believe. We get to choose how we interpret what we experience. But we forget that. We forget that we've got that remote remote control in our hand. Often what will happen is we'll feel the way we do because of just the, the inner dialogue that's going on in our mind and oh, it sucks. But we actually can change that channel. And so the reason I wrote my book, Living on Purpose, was because there are some very clear ways in which we can change that channel. And so we have to know how to do that. And that's really what the book is about, five five choices to do to do just that. 
So moving to the level of perception is really moving to the level of taking responsibility for the meaning you make. Is that right? Meaning, interpretation, exactly. How you frame. So we know we, we've heard about that term, how to reframe things. Like, how do I want to look at this? What do I want to make it mean? You know, and honestly, if we want to get really deep, often what triggers us is stuff out there and then what we make it mean about ourselves our worth, our deservability, our value. And that right there determines so much of our experience. And so how to harness that ability to define that interpretation in a new way, that's a pretty powerful muscle. It seems like we don't really do that. We don't think about it. We don't think about, yeah, the analogy is so great that you gave about the TV because Kai can't stand watching anything that has anything to do with violence. Like it would be like, Ted Lasso, and that's it, <laughs> you know? And I get that. I get that because the other day I watched an episode of the show 1923, which is a precursor to Yellowstone. And Yellowstone, I had to stop watching because it was just too much fucking drama. Like, I was just like, damn, I, I'm like stressed watching this show. <laughs> but we, you're right, we don't necessarily think about that in terms of social media consumption or, you know, who we're talking to, what we're engaged with in the world. So I'm curious when we're choosing the burger, let's, or the salad over the burger on an action based level, I'm taking that action because I would imagine that I'm thinking that choosing the salad is going to lead me to healthier outcomes and whatever level that is. If I get to the level of perception, what does that look like in terms of, or maybe there's a better example relationally? You know, I, I'll take a big step back and say that. What's really important to bring into this kind of framework in general is that the very, very universal fact that all of us want to feel good and all of us have desires. Humans, that's just natural. We all have desires. We all have goals. We set goals. We have aspirations. We have visions and we want things. Now, all of these things that we want, whether that's to be healthier, whether that's a bigger house, whether that's more money, whether that's the truth is everything that we want and everything we think we want, it's really not for the thing. It's not for the idea. We want it because we think it's going to make us feel a certain way. That makes sense. Like fitness or health, or I want to feel healthy, which may feel less anxious, less whatever it is. We have to bring this in to the conversation. We have to illuminate that because what's, what happens is we end up wanting stuff because we're told this is what we should want. We follow the formula, right? So go to school, get good grades, get good grades so you can get into a good college, get into a good college so you can get a good job, get a good job so that you can make lots of money and then you'll be happy. And so we get trained away from really asking ourselves, what do I want to feel? And we really start asking ourselves, what should I be doing? Oftentimes, what determines the choices we make is that what should I be doing versus what do I genuinely want? Going back to this idea that we're harnessing choice at the level of perception, really it's all in service of making choices that are expansive, that are freeing, that ultimately feel good, that are choices that align with this concept of thriving. That's really what it comes down to. Not limiting, but expansive, not constrictive, but growth oriented, feeling good. And so when we want to harness, so this idea is I'm going to make choices in how I perceive this ultimately to provide relief and growth and love and connection because that's what it's all about anyway. That's what all of us want. 
do you think that there is just a normalization of an absence of a collective goal towards thriving or like, or maybe is thriving defined differently? Like is thriving defined culturally or maybe just depending on where we live, but I'd imagine it's pretty similar worldwide is thriving defined as, as monetary wealth and material wealth, as opposed to health and well-being and you know because there's a lot of people who have no money who have yeah the blue zones like the blue zones it's about connection you know it's about being connected to one another it's about probably being in purpose in your in your land if that's part of it or whatever this particular question i actually really appreciate because what you're highlighting is the fact that you know all of us bring our own meaning to every single word that we're using and sharing with one another and we assume we're on the same page because we use them so often and Really, the truth is we can understand these words to be quite different. You know, I'm not going off of a standard definition of thriving, but I am distinguishing this from the word success, which is used often. And, you know, to be successful, to be effective, again, that tends to align with things like monetary worth or accomplishments and value. The way in which I use thrive, it really is a feeling state in which there is spaciousness, there is energy, there is expansion, there is love, there is self-love, there is connection to the world around us. There is that feeling of possibility and hope and growth where, you know, if we're thriving, we're in that generative mode. We're appreciative of what is and we're looking forward to what's to come. And no part of us are in that survival state where our nervous system is in the fight or flight, you know, sympathetic oh, nervous system where it's, you know, where we've got cortisol and we're looking for what's wrong instead of what's right. And we're constricting our point of view. It's really, it's the opposite of that. It's flourishing. You know, we could put it that way. And it really has nothing to do with money because, you know, I'm sure, certain you're aware of all the studies that have been done on people that, you know, come across, you know, they win the lottery and they actually end up less happy than they were before after they have the money, or they're no more happier than their counterparts that have way less money. And so again, it's it really doesn't have anything to do with status or money or accomplishments. It is interesting that we tried to change the materialistic-based version to move towards success, thinking that's going to get us what you're talking about, the feeling that we like ultimately think we'll be on the other end. But yet, as you're saying, if you decouple that from wealth, you can have the feeling of flourishing regardless of what circumstances you might be starting with. I know in your book, you talk about this, but maybe you can give us some highlights. How do we move to this state? Like, How do we go from making choices at the level of action to then perception and, and stepping into purpose and living on it, in it? Yeah. Well, a couple things. And the first is, just recognizing that what you want is a feeling and you want to feel good. And so just getting in touch with that is really important. And then starting to navigate in a new way where instead of deciding to figure things out, I mean, I encourage, I encourage people to feel them out. And I don't mean that in a new age, woo woo, like, ooh, you got to feel it out, you know, not like that. It's really, it's this idea that, you know, everything you want really is for a feeling. And yet we'll go and chase things often forsaking the feeling. So for example, it's like, okay, you know, I've been in this career for the past four years and I really should be working towards this promotion because that's what we do here in this company. And it's about time I should get a promotion. And I really, yes, that's right. I should get this. I want a, I want a promotion. I want a promotion. But really, if you stop, it might be the truth that really what I'm wanting is more 
presence with my family. And I really want to feel like a great mom. And I want to feel like a present mom. And I want to feel connected with my spouse. And I want, I want peace and I want spaciousness and I want to feel tapped in and I want to feel connected. And, and that really is what we want. But then we're not thinking about that. It's like, oh, what I should be doing is I should get this promotion. And so then we go for it. I'm going to get this promotion. I'm going to do everything I can. And gah, 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 gah. and then we realize, oh gosh, but now I'm going to have to switch job function. Oh, I'm going to have to report to that person that I actually really don't like, but that's okay because this is what I should be doing. And so we chase these things thinking that's where it's at. And then we end up realizing it and it completely conflicts with what we actually want. And we end up, we end up in these predicaments because we haven't given ourselves the opportunity to just ask, what do I want to feel? What do I want to feel? And so that's the first step is instead of asking, what do I want to do? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to feel? And so when we bring that variable in, all of a sudden, everything starts to perk up. It's like, oh, I, I can start as I can see my, my day-to-day in a new way. It's like, oh, so I actually can feel this more in my day-to-day if I focus on this or if I do that. So just bringing this into your awareness is really, really helpful. And then the second where it gets really fun is recognizing that figuring it out, right? Because I distinguish feeling it out from figuring it out. And it's not at all that I demonize figuring it out. We definitely have to strategize. We want to plan. We want to figure things out. But when it comes to living our best life, really, when we're figuring it out, we're really making those plans and I'm going to strategize my way to my goals. And and we're usually not thinking about, well, how does this actually make me feel? And a hallmark way in which we tend to figure things out is when we're driven by the word should. I should do this. I should be focusing on this. I should have made that happen. I shouldn't have done this. I should. And so we know that we're figuring it out, which is a really that sort of constrictive sort of quality when we're driven by that word. And oh my gosh, I'll tell you, Mark, I firmly believe, I think it's the worst word in the English language. This word should. (laughs) And there's like a, I have a super strong, solid argument for this, not just because, oh, it makes you feel bad when you use it. It's true. Like you feel icky when you use it, but there's a big reason why. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Okay. You ready for it? Okay. So, all right. I'm ready. So when it comes, well, wouldn't you agree? You use the word should, doesn't it just feel awful? Yeah. The word should yeah. sucks. I totally yeah, agree. It should work it's out. Like you should on yourself. We laugh at this, like, oh, you're shooting all over yourself. And we get that should isn't great, but here's why. All right. Now check this out. Like if we were to take all the emotions we could ever feel in the world and let's map them and let's just get kind of objective about this and let's map them on a scale. Okay. So everything below neutral, right? Here's so here's all the negative emotion below neutral and here's all the positive emotion above neutral. Everything below neutral, it's caused by one thing. And for a lot of people, when they get this, oh my gosh, it's a game changer. And here it is, everything, everything below neutral, whether it's confusion down to, you know, to disappointment, to anger, to revenge, all the way down to shame. It's simply this, here you are, if you're in your now moment, And as soon as you resist what is, as soon as you push against reality and you resist what is, boom, you drop below neutral. And to the degree that you push, to the degree that you resist is to the degree that you are negative. For a lot of people, negative emotion can be this mysterious sort of, oh my gosh, it just doesn't make sense. I've got all these emotions. It can be helpful to recognize that anytime we're experiencing negative emotion, it's simply because we are pushing against reality. 
And so then you have to ask, well, how is it that we push against reality? Well, there's the obvious way in which, like, let's say I'm planning to have this amazing picnic outside with a bunch of my friends, and now it starts raining. Oh, no, I don't want this rain, right? And so the rain happens, I push against the rain, and now I'm upset. So it's not that the rain makes me upset, it's my relationship to the rain, and I'm pushing against it. And so that's overt resistance. Many of us can experience that in our day-to-day. In fact, I have dogs, right? When my dog sheds, I get dog hair everywhere. I don't want the dog hair. I just vacuumed and it's all over my house, right? That's overt resistance. It's going to make me frustrated. So that's obvious. The more subtle ways in which we resist what is, is judgment. And so what's judgment? Judgment is I should be different. You should be different. The circumstances should be different. So we judge in three ways, self, others, or circumstance. And judgment really is just a should statement. I should, you should. But think about what that means. Should is I'm really pushing against what is. And so to make this just very clear, here's the argument. If we take this vertical scale okay, of, our, of our emotions, let's flip it on its axis, okay? And so now let's imagine that all the stuff that you could ever want in the world is all on this side of you. Okay. So to me, I'm, I'm focused on the left side of me. So everything I want, this is all the positive emotion. This is the stuff I want. It's the, it's the house, it's the vacation, but more importantly, it's the feeling, right? It's the love and the joy and the freedom. And let's imagine that everything I don't want is on this side of me, which is the right side of me. And this is the debt and the rejection and all that stuff. Okay. Well, here's the thing about should, if we're using should, we think we're motivating ourselves to move in this direction, right? But the truth is, if I'm using should, what I'm focused on is not what I want. I'm focused on what do I want to avoid? And it's subtle because it's not over. It's just, it's subtle. And so, for example, I should go to the gym, right? So if I say I should go to the gym, I am not focusing on health and youthfulness and flexibility. If I say, oh, I should go to the gym, what I'm really focused on is, oh gosh, I feel fat. And so what I do is I turn in the direction of the stuff I don't want, and I push it away from me. And now in the act of pushing, which way am I moving? I'm actually moving in the direction of what I want, but it comes at a great cost. I'm pushing. So therefore, I'm below neutral. I'm resistant. Yeah. Yeah. And so the short answer here, when it comes to should, really what we're doing is we are avoiding negative consequences and we're pushing against the things we don't want more than we are focusing on realizing the life and realizing the reality that we actually do want. I think about the shoulds in the context of relationship where people are like pushing against the reality that maybe they're in a toxic relationship or they're toxic or they're choosing someone unhealthy or they're being someone unhealthy or, you know, they're not listening to their intuition. And so there's a resistance to reality. That makes sense. So then you would experience sadness, anger, depression, all the things, disappointment, shame. And I do recognize that even focusing on that, you are moving yourself towards whatever it is you want to create, but you're not doing it in the, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're not doing it in a way that's actually healthy or productive because you're trying to move away from feelings that are bad or circumstances. You're trying to resist them and move towards good or whatever, you know, quote unquote good. So interesting. Well, and and we could just look at this in pure, like in just very, very simple objective terms, because it's not just that, okay, so yes, resistance is the cause of all things negative. If when we push against what is, we cause ourselves to be negative. So that's the downside of using should. We're going to stay in a state that we actually don't really want. 
But then when we're using should, we're also really focusing on all the stuff we really don't want. So we're not being creative and generative on what we could be creating. So that's the next thing. But then I really look at this in terms of a bandwidth issue, because if I'm pushing against, that takes bandwidth, that takes resources. And as long as there is should in my equation of life, if I'm shooting on myself, I'm shooting on my partner, I'm if I'm just using shoulds as a way of navigating, I am literally sustaining resistance. It's kind of like holding out a weight right now. It's like if I were if I'm in this conversation with you, Mark, and I've got shoulds running in the background, it's like I'm holding on to a weight while I'm having this conversation with you. So you can't even be fully present. You can't fully access all your, you know, mind, your soul, whatever it is. That's it. And so and if we gen, if we really, really want to live into the life that we were born to live, it takes us pivoting completely from that. And we have to pivot away from should and then really ask ourselves, well, what is it that I want? As simple as that sounds, it is such a nourishing pivot. And it's hard to remember to do because we're all so conditioned to push. But the moment you make that pivot, it's like, oh, gosh, what do I want? And you're so going back to that example. Like if I'm saying, oh, I should work out. Wait, no, 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 no. Right. Okay. Not going to should. What do I want? Huh? Well, you know, I want to feel good. I want to feel free. I want to feel good in my skin. I want to feel energized. Now, just by the simple act of pivoting, you've got a whole new perceptual horizon because now I'm not facing this stuff I don't want over here. I'm now this other way and there's no resistance. So I've got a wide open horizon. And this is where all of a sudden new ideas emerge. It's like, oh, wait. It's a beautiful day. I'm going to go for a hike with, I'm going to call my neighbor. I'm going to see if she wants to join me. And then all these things that are in our vision of what's wanted start to emerge. And then I just, I say that this pivot, it's the path of least resistance to the path of most abundance. You can feel it somatically too. Like in my body, when you were pivoting, I can feel how light it is to move to what was on your left and how the other side feels a little more icky you know, or like heavier or whatever it is in your work with people. And with all the, I mean, I know you work with individuals and companies. So you see these like massive volumes of people. Do you see that as like the most common place that people are stuck or where are people most stuck in moving through this process of stepping into the purpose? Oh boy. There are themes that I see. Should is a big one. Resistance is a huge one. And helping folks recognize that they're sustaining unnecessary resistance, which really just eating up their creative bandwidth. And in that category, really what I'm trying to help people do is, and this really for everything that I, that I teach, everything that I do, it always comes down to this, you gotta care way more about how you feel. You have to care about how you feel because how you feel is telling you how you're focusing, what channel you're on, and you get to change the channel. But if you don't care about how you feel, then you just become conditioned to that white noise of anxiety or that white noise of discontent or that white noise of frustration or confusion or uncertainty or whatever. It's like the refrigerator humming in the background. And so first helping people recognize that it is a skill and a gift to just care about how you feel. Then when you care, then you're going to catch, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm feeling quite apathetic. Oh, I'm really feeling a little edgy. Oh, I'm feeling, gosh, I got some anxiety going on. So then my first Thing would be to say, okay, well, if you're below neutral, cool. That's just a sim. That's a sign that you're pushing against something. So what is it? Where's the should? Is a better way of of identifying. Where's the should? And so for a lot of the folks and the leaders and the teams that I work with, it's where are you shoulding? Because guess what? It's going to be futile. 
you're just making life harder for yourself. So catch the should and then use that as a way to pivot. Okay, well, what do you want to create? So okay, here's what is, here's what is. Doesn't serve you to push against it. It's already here. Doesn't serve you to judge it. It's already here. Now, what are you going to do with it? And that's one of the biggest ahas for folks is because we're, a lot of us are trained to think, well, I've got to push against this in order to create change. I've got to push against this. And I say, well, you're going to create a lot of emotion in the process of doing that and eat up a lot of your resources in the process of creating change. And if you really want to be optimal, let it be what it is. This is what we got. This is what's real. Now pivot. What do you actually want to create? And so that's one of the biggest ahas for folks. The other really big category. It has to do with a lot of leaders I work with. It has to do with the anxiety. I hate to say the word imposter syndrome because, you know, it's, it's so overused these days, but this feeling of like, oh, this uncertainty of self and the anxiety of self. And so that resistance that we're experiencing within and just straight up confidence. And what do we need to do to really be on purpose in our way of being so that we can be purposeful and really thrive in that regard? So that's a big one too. We need to talk about my morning routine. I'm nailing it. I got meditation, breath work, some cool plunging, workouts. And, you know, most of you have probably tried meditation. I'm guessing for some of you, it is part of your morning ritual. But have you tried breath work? That's my question. I took a class on an app that I'm just loving and I'm hooked on it. The app is unbelievable and it's called Open. I had the founder, Minaj Diaz, on the podcast a few times because he's an incredible teacher and he really lives everything that he shares. And the app is incredible. The design is insane. Some of the benefits that I've really experienced from implementing this in my morning routine is I sleep better, I'm less stressed, and I have more energy and focus throughout the day. And the best part about Open is that the classes are under 10 minutes. So it's easy to stick with. It's not like an overwhelming thing. It's actually quite simple. And so usually what I'll do is a meditation, breath work, and then they also have movement classes. So it's easy to just have consistent morning routines because you can go to one place and it's just that much easier. It's definitely different from other mindfulness apps out there and you're definitely going to know what I mean when you try it. You get 30 days for free when you sign up with my code Create the Love. So you just visit withopen.com slash create the love. So again, you get 30 days free, so you got no risk on open, and you just go to withopen, W-I-T-H-O-P-E-N.com slash create the love. Go check it out. What does it mean to be on purpose in your way of being? Like, is that alignment, like where you talked about how do I want to feel, then is being on purpose in your being, being in the actions or in the choices that would be in alignment to move towards that feeling? Which is, you know, at the same time moving away from how you don't want to feel. But I like that you're saying move towards what you want to feel because you're using bandwidth thinking about leaving something versus moving towards something. It's such a subtle shift, but it's it's light. Yeah, and it's effective. So I'm going to answer that question, but just a side note. You know, I deal with a lot of tired leaders, especially right now in just where we are in our economy, what's happening with all the layoffs. It's people are really tired. And a lot of that exhaustion just comes from perpetual resistance that they don't even realize is they're sustaining. And the opportunity, of course, is just let's, let's let things be what they are. And then we ask what we want to do with it. But to go back to this question around, you know, what does it mean to be on purpose in our way of being? Going back to focus, it's so important. What we focus on determines everything. 
Now that feeling of anxiety and that feeling of nervousness that a lot of people feel, now I'm just going to focus on anxiety. And you know that, that feeling of anxiety, like if you're, if let's within say a work context, if, if you've got to give a big presentation to the board or you have to, you know, you have to do a big pitch or that time when we get that anxiety, it's like, oh, right. So that anxiety, again, it's just a sign that we've got resistance going on. But if we want to be on purpose, we want to transcend these habits of, of mind and really thrive. What it takes is recognizing where our focal point is. And so straight up, when it comes down to anxiety in this way that I'm talking about, it's simply because what we're focused on is our self, our image, right? And so breaking this down in every moment in time for each and every one of us, we always have a, a primary underlying objective that is live in that moment. And I like to call it a stance. So in every moment in time, each and every one of us is always standing for something, but we're usually not aware of what we're standing for. And that just has to do with the difference between the, the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. But let me just give you an example so you know what I'm talking about. So right now I'm in this fun conversation with you. Now, if I didn't know what I know in this now moment, I could ultimately be standing for impressing you. And that could be my primary underlying objective underneath this conversation. Or I could ultimately be standing for convincing you. And that could be my underlying primary objective, right? You could, like in your case, you could just be standing for getting this done <laughs> because you said you would. <laughs> or you could be standing for you know, empowering others. Now, in our case, I'm certain that both of us are really standing for empowering others, helping heal the planet, help the world, 100%. And so in each moment, each of us, there's a, there's a primary stance. We feel this in our relationships, right? If we're in a tiff with our partner, our noble self would love to think we're standing for harmony. But the truth is, almost 100% of the time, <laughs> we're standing for being right, right? Or winning. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> right? But here's a big one. If you, if you have to give really hard feedback to a colleague or like, that's hard. And everybody universally will say, oh, it's hard to give constructive, hard feedback. And I'm like, well, guess what? It's only hard for one reason. It's because of a stance you're holding that you don't mean to, that's not serving you. And in that moment, you're actually avoiding, you're standing for avoiding conflict. You are not standing for their growth. Well, I'm bringing this up because each of us has a stance. It's like a spotlight that we get to control, but we forget that we're controlling it. And the stance is going to slip and it's going to shift. And it's the way it's, it's, it's really, it has to do with our survival brain and why and how it's always trying to protect us. But the truth is if we're if feeling icky, that's just a symptom that in this moment, I'm probably standing for something I'm not choosing and it's not serving me. And 100%, it's going to be standing for being right. I'm standing for doing this right. I'm standing for winning. I'm standing for looking good. I'm standing for being admired. And it's almost always going to be, I'm standing for myself. And so if we want to be on purpose in our way of being for our impact in service with our, in our leadership, it takes harnessing that spotlight and say, no, 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 no. You know what? In this moment, I know I'm going to stand for it. And then I don't know, you decide. I'm going to stand for mutual success. I'm going to stand for joy. I'm going to stand for possibility. I'm going to stand for, I don't know, whatever the moment calls for. But it's waking up to the spotlight that we get to control, harnessing it deliberately, and then letting that be the primary focal point that we channel all of our resources through. And guess what? This is truly 
What executive presence is about is when we're standing for the noble thing. It's not about us. This is where eloquence comes from. This is where genuine influence and impact come from, is when you are so aligned behind that chosen, claimed stance. That's what it means to be on purpose in our way of being. And it's a moment-to-moment practice. It's not a switch you find. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. I'm going to just stand for the noble thing for all time. Here we go. And it's, no, you got you to <laughs> play this game by virtue of how you feel. And how you feel is telling you where your stance is at. You have to be deliberate with it. Yeah, because we don't normally think of that. I think what you're bringing forward too, even unconsciously in almost all of our relationships, as you said, we might be standing for convincing them of our perspective or convincing them we're right or shifting their perspective to ours as opposed to something collaborative, expansive. It's so naturally unconsciously human to want to do the previous, you know? And it's not generative though. It's not generative of relationship or expansion or self. Or I think in a way too, I'm curious your thoughts on this. In a way, it also probably feels a bit manipulative and yeah, like we're not in integrity. Like it's not ethical, but it's survival, you know, until it isn't. It is survival. But the thing is, see, nobody wakes up in the morning deciding to be unethical, right? Nobody wakes up going, nobody wakes up saying, I'm going to be evil today. I'm going to be manipulative, right? So everybody, and I'm certain of this for every human on the planet, even the questionable ones that we all think, oh gosh, where'd you come from? They wake up truly in thinking that they've got good, they're coming from a place that they think that they're coming from good intentions. And so we all are. What happens is we fall into this predicament where we are so convinced of our own point of view. And it's not that we, uh, here's my thought. It's not that we are being unethical or out of integrity. Our thinking is, is if you could just see it my way, we'd all be in harmony and all would be well. (laughs) The irony of that confronting of a conflict. Yeah. And so we dig our heels in trying to get people to see our point of view, but it's in the sheer act of that being positional that we actually create more disconnection because we're not signaling that we're open to influence or open to, to you know, really actually hear your point of view. And so there's, there, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> about conversational intelligence. But at the end of the day, I would say it feels manipulative, but it really does come from this place of, oh, if you could just see it my way, just come on this side of the fence with me and we'd be in harmony. But when you get two people feeling that way, that's where you end up with conflict. Yeah. Come on my side of the fence as opposed to let's build one together or whatever collaboration might look like. You spoke about anxiety, like moving through anxiety. And you also mentioned nervousness. And when I consider things like giving big presentations or having hard conversations, which I think we all, at least energetically, we might change how we orient. Like I I look at hard conversations as being the gateway to liberation, but that doesn't mean I look, you know, I'm like super pumped about (laughs) them all the time. But I know that they are, maybe to use that word again, a generative part of the process of deepening intimacy, trust, collaboration, relation. So how do we shift that? Like how do we shift out of that state of nervous preparation or... Is it about this conscious changing of stance? And if we consciously change stance, that will remove nervousness? For sure. And to do that, absolutely. And But to do that, to organically want to shift the spotlight on a way, a way bigger picture thing, something that's noble. So for example, mutual success, co-creation, collaboration, joy, possibility. 
it really starts with the knowledge and, and just the straight up truth that at the end of the day, it's not about me, but we make it about ourselves. We are so convinced that, oh, it's about me. It's about proving myself. It's about looking good. It's about, we think that our job is to prove ourselves in order to succeed. And this is where I say, it is so not about you. And it's, it's not about me and it's not about you. And everyone's like, well, yes, it is. And I'm like, no, it's not. And they're like, well, and I'm like, okay, straight up, think about this for a second. Okay, you think people are like focused on you? You think they actually, who, who, who is everybody else thinking about? Themselves, right? So it's not even about you. And people say, well, Amy, but hold on. What about that interview I've got? You know, that is about proving myself. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not about proving yourself. You're in there to go, you're standing for mutual fit. You're standing for possibility. You're standing for bringing amazing minds together to realize something incredible in the world. And you're standing for the possibility of that. Not you looking good. And the moment you make it about you looking good, you've lost your power. You've lost the opportunity. And so to get to this place where we organically want to choose a focal point that is so beyond ourselves, it starts with just deciding it's not about me. Sobering and, and sad as that is, it's really liberating, <laughs> right? It really is. Well, the shift in relationship and what's possible when we, I, you know, Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt have this line where they say that we mostly turn to relationship from the perspective, my relationship isn't giving me what I need. And they say that the to reorient yourself to what would my relationship need from me in order to feel that way. And it's such a profound, simple shift. Like, wait... I'm trying to resource from this relationship instead of bringing resources to the relationship to create a sense of whatever shared connection, depth, trust. Beautiful. Yeah, it's such a difference. I, when you're working with people on this shift, what's the greatest resistance you see? When you're like, all right, let's step into purpose. Let's move into choice at the level of perception. And what is just like the, the consistent or like maybe most regular what would it be? Resistance, I guess, to, to doing that? In general, it's rare that I'll get pushback because it's just very, very logically, we all want to feel good. It's very simple. Our focus is our own. And when you get that all negative emotion really is just a function of resisting what is, should's a big part of that. And we get to shift our spotlight. Okay. Okay, cool. The, the only kind of pushback, and I wouldn't even say it's pushback, where folks can get stuck is where they have convinced themselves of true innate inadequacy. And, and they'd much rather argue for their limitation and they'd much rather argue for lack and how it's not working for them and how this doesn't apply than they are more apt to be open to the possibility of trying these on. It's not super common, but it's for those that just are are so convinced and it's almost, it's become a survival mechanism. They are so enraptured by this idea that they are genuinely of lack and it just doesn't work for them. So a deep sense of unworthiness that is like, we're almost so unconsciously committed to maybe through the narratives, through the stories, through the experiences we probably had in childhood that just keep feeding. And so we become almost like unconsciously super committed to that because it's familiar. Is that fair? Is that what you see? Well, gosh, this is a big conversation. Yes. So the relationship that we have with ourselves, the beliefs that we hold, right? You're hundred percent spot on all those beliefs we've taken on as a result of our childhood experiences. 
Now, my hypothesis, and I, I present this in the book, and it's really more of a theory at this point, but the reason we take on these beliefs such as I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not lovable, I'm not likable, I'm not, you name it. The reason that we take those on and have that a part of our kind of our makeup, it's because those are those beliefs are the result of our primal fear of rejection. And so, you know, rejection is an experience for humans. We don't talk about this enough. And it just baffles me that this isn't a part of the cultural conversation. Maybe that's why I wrote the book is I'm like, we've got to be talking about this. I mean, did you know that rejection literally registers as physical pain in the brain? But if you take a step back and think about this, you're like, wait a minute. When a human's born, and you're going to know this in just a couple of weeks here, Mark, when a human is born, right, humans are born completely helpless, right? They are completely, totally helpless, and they are born neurologically underdeveloped. And so when you take those facts together, they're survival brain dominant, right? So robotically hardwired to survive, plus the fact that you're helpless, that means then what's death to the brain? Well, let's see, food, water, shelter, that's important, but guess what? That'll come if the most important thing happens, which is if mom or dad buy in. So therefore, rejection to the brain is death. And there's a wiring in us that has us avoiding rejection like we avoid the plague. And it's so invasive and so subtle. I mean, this is why this wiring, it exists for literally for all time. That's why we are, we reel from judgment. That's like, oh my gosh, I'm so afraid of judgment. I'm so afraid of failing. We think it's, oh, cause I just don't want to be judged. Oh, I think it's cause I just don't want to fail. No, 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 no. It's because if you're judged, oh, you're seen unfavorably. That means it's like rejection that triggers like rejection. Oh, death, right? Oh, failure. Oh, if I fail that, well, it's not just failure. It's because it's like, I'm going to be seen unfavorably, which maps rejection, which maps to death. So all of the way in so much of our perception and so much of the way in which we navigate the world is to avoid that sense of rejection. I bring this up because these deeply rooted beliefs that we hold about ourselves were formed as a way of making sense of the pain of rejection when we were a child to, in order to understand, in order to make sense of, oh my gosh, why did this hurt so much? Oh my gosh, it must, oh, it must be because oh, I must not be good enough, right? So we imprint these false limiting beliefs as a way of making sense of the discomfort and the pain that really literally maps to death to the brain for a child so that our brain can therefore protect us from here on out. So that stuff happens, but then we learn to live with it. And then we learn to, to work with it. And then we make it work for us. And then we think all of these survival mechanisms we've developed are our strengths when in fact they're just false acts that are rooted out of a false belief with ourselves. So this is a long answer to your question about this, the thing around these beliefs, you know, all of us have them within us and it's the ones that, that are really clinging to them as a way of trying to understand themselves and understand themselves in the world. That's where it can get a little challenging and taking on some of these other perspectives. Yeah, I think this shift of transformation, like the shift from stepping into our purpose, stepping into relationships, stepping in with intention, what we stand for, is this changing of sourcing or seeing our worth validated by our, our external environment and circumstances versus actually dictated wholly by our internal, you know, structures, our, our values, our choices, you know, and that seems to be like, 
the reclamation process or maybe the dark night of the soul or the psychotic break or whatever we're going to call the moment that we realize that we've been externally sourcing and defining ourselves instead of internally sourcing and defining ourselves. It's such a shift because then we go from being in relationship and work from a place of needing people to see, validate, witness, understand to a place of I see, validate, witness, understand myself because I'm willing to go to the depths of my own psyche. And now I don't need to get that in relationship. And now I can just be in relationship, which is such a different, it kind of comes back full circle to, in my experience, what you were saying about when you're differentiating between what you were taught versus what you're, what you actually desire, which I think is the very same dancing for the applause. You know, if you're always dancing for applause, when there's no applause, you won't think that your dance is worth anything. It's, I just heard recently something very, it was profound to me. It was that a lot of art will now never get made because people think that their art is only validated if it gets likes and shares. And to me, it was very true, probably of every generation, not just the young generation, but their, their idea that if I put it online and people love it, then my art is good. But art doesn't, that's, art just exists it's separate of its self-expression. You know, I'm, I'm curious what you think about all that. Oh gosh, you get into a subject that's just so near and dear to my heart, which really has to do with this, this, the proving, the need to prove, the need to validate that all of us are crippled by this proving paradigm that we all live within. And here is my hypothesis on this is that the reason that we feel the need to prove is simply because our sense of self is rooted in beliefs. And here's what's important to know is that if our sense of self is rooted in belief and not in knowing, okay, they're very different things. To believe something is very different to know than knowing something. And because of how we're conditioned as kids and because of our fear of rejection and because of how we formulate and, and concretize and imprint beliefs as in order to make sense of our lives, we end up placing our sense of self in the structure of belief. Now, what's relevant about that is that belief is naturally, necessarily dualistic, right? So if I, for example, if I believe it's a nice day, you might believe it's not a nice day, right? So there's going to be this duality to it. But in order for a belief to exist at all, it requires conditions. You can never assert a belief without conditions. Meaning like, if I believe it's a nice day, I don't just say that. It's because, hey, there's not a cloud in the sky and there's a nice breeze and people are out on the lawn. There I can uphold a belief, but you might be from Antarctica or let's say Calgary. You were up again the last time we talked, Maria. It was cold, right? And you'd be like, oh my God, this is not a nice day. It's too hot. 80 degrees would be the death of me. Right? And so there's this duality. It's not distant from the tree. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. But there's this duality in belief. And so when we place our sense of self in belief, essentially what happens is we make ourselves conditional. And then therefore, our sense of worth and our sense of value and our acceptability, because remember, if rejection is death to the brain, then what is life? Acceptance, belonging, and approval. So in order to gain that, I now need to go prove it with conditions. And so if we are predominantly operating from beliefs in order to know self, we are going to be stuck needing to prove ourselves constantly. And that's a trap because here's the paradox is that the false thinking is, okay, well, if I just get the next set of proof and the next set of proof, and this is why we figure things out, right? And strategize the way to the next thing and to the next thing, because there's this false hope that we don't fully check out, that it's in this next set of proof that I'm finally going to be free. What we're wanting 
what we're genuinely wanting is not the thing. It's the feeling of knowing of our wholeness and completeness. But as long as we need to prove our wholeness and completeness, we're stuck in this paradigm where we need to prove and we're never free. And the paradox here, but to know that we're whole and complete, here it is. It's simply a choice. It is the most profound perceptual choice you can make and you just make it. And here's where everybody's goes, what, what? What makes it so amazing is you just choose it. Just choose to know you're whole and complete. And the reason this is so easy is because you just do it, but it's really, it could be really hard <laughs> because everyone's so practiced in needing to prove it. And so for so many of us, we're like, okay, can I just know that I'm whole and complete? Uh, sure. As soon as I, well, you just hopped right back into that yeah, proving As paradigm. soon as there's evidence or conditions. Yeah. And so our freedom really is in just this profound, most profound choice that we can make, which is to know, not believe our worth. I like that shift between knowing and believing. I want to dive a little deeper into that. Okay. First off, you said that beliefs are reinforced by condition. Is that the way you said it? They require conditions, right? You can't have a belief. They require conditions. Mm -hmm. So in order to sustain a belief, I have to keep seeing conditions, right? So unconsciously, because we're more committed to maintaining, you said we're more convinced with fighting for our limitations than destroying them, which is interesting. So we're, because of the way our brains work, we're more apt to seek evidence to validate beliefs because if we are wrong, then now we're uncertain and death rejection, you know, I guess it's the irony of a few of these. One is that you are constantly experiencing internalized rejection throughout that process, which is really fascinating. And that's why I think that shift of whenever there's quote unquote, an awakening, whatever anyone wants to think of that to me is just becoming awake to your patterns, becoming starting to ask questions, starting to audit yourself and be real about yourself, not deny reality, like knowing you can be, you know, unkind, knowing you can be rude, knowing you can have collapsed boundaries, knowing you, you source your worth through sexuality or whatever it is, this shift to knowing, even just the word knowing just feels so like, ah, there's like a certainty, right? Like exhale, I don't have to fuck around anymore chasing it in a relationship or whatever it is. It is such a profound shift to just say, actually, you don't, it's just a choice. And then where I go is that, okay, well, if you're going to make that choice that you know you're whole and complete, then now that choice and that identity, which I think is inherent, but as you said, like lost or we're convinced that it's not true through our experiences because we make our experiences about our worth and not just about the circumstances. You know, Gabor Mate talks about how when a child's growing up, they have two choices when their parents fail them. One, that they're not worthy of being shown up for or the parents are a failure. But because of survival, they choose. It's always going to be, they're going to take it on themselves. That's right. Right. And like adults, as an adult where we're orienting to ourselves, and I just want to get your thoughts on this thought process when we're orienting to ourselves and seeing, oh shit, I did that. Cause I'm sure for you listening. And when I learned that, I was like, oh fuck, I did that. Like everyone, I think everyone does it till they don't, till they realize that what they're doing is not working because what they believe about themselves keeps recreating the conditions, as you said, which I never thought about it that way, but it's really interesting. So when you shift to knowing, there's now a demand that your choices align at the level of perception. Is that fair? Yeah. You, well, actually, it gets more simple than that. So think of it this way, to align what you're saying with beliefs. When we take on beliefs, beliefs are like a pair of glasses. And so like, for example, if I have a belief that the world is a safe place, I'm wearing the, the world is a safe place glasses. And so now my perception is tuned to pick out all the conditions to make that 
so there's congruency in my experience. So I'm going to pick up on all that stuff. But when we shift from believing to knowing about who we are, right? So if I go from, I believe I'm a good person to, I know I'm whole and complete. Essentially what I've done is I've taken the glasses off. Now without glasses, stuff just becomes stuff. With glasses, everything looks like evidence, right? And so think of it like if we go back in time, check this out. Let's imagine you're three years, four years old, four years old, and you haven't had the experience of significant rejection enough to imprint a belief that, oh my gosh, I'm not good enough. And I think this is why we love little kids so much. Like those three-year-olds and those two-year-olds, they're so self-expressed and oh my gosh, Mark, I'm so excited. You're going to have this soon. It's so great. But you know, they, they can just, they do what they want. They got a pink sock and a blue sock and they're just so free. And it's because they're not worried about what people think about them. Because they're not struggling with this thought of, I believe I'm good enough. I not believe I'm good. Enough. They just know themselves as whole and complete. So they don't have glasses on. So, you know, if little Janie doesn't invite you to her birthday party, okay, she just doesn't invite me to her birthday party. Fine. But the moment you put the glasses on, oh, I'm not good enough. I believe I'm not good enough. Well, now it looks like evidence for or against the fact that you believe you're not good enough. And so when we shift our being to knowing, then we just objectively look at the stuff around us. So that funny look that we might get in a meeting, somebody's looking at us like, oh, I don't know. We immediately don't think, oh my gosh, it's, it's because they don't think I'm smart. Just like, oh, they must have a question, right? And so we gain this tremendous amount of freedom, tremendous amount of spaciousness and a tremendous amount of resources to innovate and to create and to connect with others when we are not busy trying to prove our worth. Freaking amen to that. There's such a liberating, and now all of a sudden you've been talking about this, which I'm getting it and I'm getting it. This idea that now you're in this space of orienting away from negative emotion to positive creation. You're being conscious about your stance, which is more about trying to set the intention of stepping into something noble, being in alignment with knowing rather than beliefs that are not serving us. Is there anything else that we need to know that we're missing or, or would be helpful to sort of like bring it home? You know, I think the big nugget that is a choice you have to make, and it's probably one of the biggest ones, and it's it's really giving yourself permission to know that you're already whole and complete. And the in order for all of this to work, I mean, well, what we're talking about, feeling it out, not figuring it out, and how we use should and stance, all of that, are stand, you can do that as a standalone, but if we want it to all come together, we have to choose to know that we are already whole and complete. And so many folks would be like, yeah, okay, well, I'd like to believe that. And then I say, oh, notice those words. I'd like to believe that. I'm like, no, you got to know it. And it's like, well, I'd like to know that. But, and then we start using all these reasons why that might not be true. It's such a powerful perceptual shift to just choose to know that you're already whole and complete. Because guess what? You were whole and complete when you were born. You were whole and complete when you were one and you were two. You were whole and complete before you got rejected. And guess what? You were whole and complete after you got rejected and you took on this belief that you weren't good enough. You just boot, you just turned away from it and started living through these glasses. And you've now spent decades trying to prove yourself safe. And so the only reason it doesn't feel true is because you've got all this practice in proving yourself enough which is, doesn't get you there. And so we kind of have to take a leap of faith and just decide. And that there it is. You just have to decide that you're already whole and complete. Easiest thing you'll ever do, you know?
Well, and the shift, because you could either say, well, this evidence proves I'm not versus change your circumstances, change the perceptions, change so that they complement the desired knowing rather than shifting the knowing. It's really interesting. Is I know you have so many different disciplines you pull from. Is a lot of it informed by Buddhism or like where's, I'm just curious because it, like you have such a sort of like a non-attachment, like all these really beautiful ways of perceiving things. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, absolutely. I became interested in Buddhism when I was, I was probably about 12 years old. Way ahead of the game. <laughs> Shit. Well, I, was, well, I wasn't thinking about Buddhism. <laughs> I was thinking about booty, not Buddhism. <laughs> I, well, it was, um, I was just in the public library and I, I stumbled upon Thich Nhat Hanh's book and I fell in love with it. And I was really fortunate. I grew up in a very metaphysical household. My mom and my grandma, very into how thinking is causative and just, and I would love big, big conversations. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Very blessed. Very blessed. And so I, um, was very much into it and just informally studied and, and that's really kind of stayed with me throughout. And so, you know, my, my passions around these, I master's in transpersonal psychology to understand that. So like pulling in a lot of ancient wisdom traditions to understand like what it means to be human, but yeah, Buddhism aligns a lot, very much so. Yeah. Transpersonal psychology is such a beautiful merger of spirituality with, which I ultimately think psychology is a science's attempt you know, to give words to the soul and to spirituality. Yeah, I, I think of one of my favorite quotes from Richard Rohr is that on the search to find God, you find yourself. And on the search to find yourself, you find God. They're not separate processes. And I think love can be put in there just as easily as God or, you know, because maybe they're all the same, whatever, you know, but I just love the way that you see the world. And I feel like we need to do an in-person interview. Yes, we do. Because it's such a... I'm I'm about ready to throw digital screens out the window. <laughs> um, I've, I've met my uh, capacity for Zooming, but it's been such a gift to be able to dive into your brain. When I think about my stance as you were talking about that, it really has been to attempt to extrapolate from you what is in service of the listeners. And I'll leave you with this because I know this will resonate with you, but because we talk, you talk so beautifully about unconditional love and unconditional self-love going back to this idea that if we just choose to know that we are whole and complete, that is the essence of unconditional self-love right there. That's it. That's the, if we think it's going to be this work, but it's actually letting go of resistance to the truth. That's right. Taking the glasses off. Fuck. It's so easy, Amy. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, where can people find more of you? And, and I know your book is available, Audible, Amazon, all the places. And where can people find more of you as well? Yeah, thank you. So my website has a lot of information, a lot of resources, and that's alwaysonpurpose.com. And I like to hang out on LinkedIn. That's about probably the only social media place that I hang out. And I'm, <laughs> you can find me there. <laughs> Brilliant boundaries. Brilliant boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Amy, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. 